Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, December 21st, 2020. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So, guys, uh, late last night, apparently, we've now cleared the decks, and there will be a $900 billion stimulus package which, of course, raises the question, why wasn't there a $900 billion stimulus package two months ago or three months ago, and who's to blame? And Democrats always want to blame Mitch McConnell, and uh, it was Nancy Pelosi who said the $2 billion wasn't enough, as I recall, in September. So I don't know why she isn't more to blame, since this is pretty close to the number that Republicans said they were, they were comfortable with and that she has now agreed to, but fine. So don't blame anybody. Everybody is going to get punished at some point. The Both parties are going to get punished for their behavior over the last six months in relation to the second stimulus. So we have uh, extended unemployment, federal unemployment money, $300 a week on top of state unemployment money, uh, which goes for 11 weeks, I think. And then basically a direct check from the federal government to taxpayers who make less than $75,000 a year. Do I have that right? $600 a week or $75,000 for individuals, one fifty for couples, very similar to what we experience right. in the spring. And, and the payroll protection act, uh, comes back for another go round. Um, and, uh, I, basically from what I can tell, uh, it's kind of a general proposition that this is a, a, a reasonably this is a this is a more modest version of what went on in the spring, and that was considered pretty successful in terms of keeping the country from falling off, uh, you know, a cliff into the abyss. And that this is the question of can this work as a stopgap uh, as people get vaccinated, uh, and there's new hope for sort of like 2021. Uh, that by the time these benefits run out in, I guess, late March or something like that, that that the economy itself will naturally start generating its own heat and its own force and start moving again. Clearly, this couldn't have come too soon. The November and December numbers are looking very bad. I was talking today to a friend of mine who is in uh, in business who said that um, – uh, they were actually his his field. They were actually having a pretty good year, and that actually, in total contrast to what is supposed to happen, December things fell off a cliff. Uh, that the second uh, wave uh, and uh, increased pessimism, and the fact that people actually had been spending money early meant that they did not have necessarily have money to spend late. Uh, so, you know, this may have come either come just in time or it's a little too late and that we are going to experience another kind of like bottoming out. And then this is going to have to help push it back. <clears throat> this shows you a little bit about the myopia of the commentary class, because the most frustration that I've seen over this package has been with the, um, direct stimulus checks, the $600 stimulus that, you know, people say it's not enough. Um, and the people who are saying that are the people who are gainfully employed and don't have to worry about UI. Uh, that's the stopgap. That's what's going to keep the economy from collapsing. These uh, stimulus checks are, as you said, John, you know, designed to reinvigorate consumer confidence, consumer spending. Um, 
as minimal as they are, it's an injection of liquidity in order to get people spending. It's not, you know, to, to keep people from experiencing crushing, crippling poverty and, and falling below the poverty line or having some sort of catastrophic event happen to them. PPP is a much more effective program in that sense. Um, but there's also this prevailing sentiment, which is just a sentiment, that the United States did absolutely nothing, really, to address this coronavirus crisis. You know, we just kind of sat on our hands and did the the, the least possible at the last possible minute, which is counter history. It's absolutely untrue. Um, most of the industrialized economies in the world didn't send checks to individuals. Um, they did the PPP thing. They did try to keep people employed and provide benefits for those who were not. But I mean, the, the individual check thing is really, I don't think there are very many economies, there may be one or two, but I don't think there are very many economies in the industrialized world that, that did that. Um, so we're, we're, there's this narrative creation, which I guarantee you is going to take hold and be the prevailing wisdom in moving forward that the United States was just irredeemably lethargic in its approach to this crisis when it really wasn't. This is phase four, don't forget of our stimulus efforts to, to mitigate the second order effects of the pandemic. And John, I think you're being too kind to say, oh, well, everyone will be blamed. I absolutely blame Nancy Pelosi for the delay. And in bit, bit- the delay in getting new uh, uh, stimulus passed because she was basically holding it hostage to, to, to damage Trump politically. Uh, that plus the kind of crazed opening, closing, shutting indoor dining, opening outdoor dining, closing it again that governors and local officials have been making put a, have put a lot of people's jobs now permanently uh, at risk and or uh, decimated them in the restaurant industry in particular, but a lot of small businesses trying to balance both these these seesawing regulations, openings and closings, combined with the fact that they had no guarantee of relief coming that they could bank on, like they couldn't kind of stretch out payroll and keep people on it in the hope that they would be getting some relief in the next month because of Nancy Pelosi. I absolutely blame her. I think I and I hope that historians do too because she she played a game with the American people that I think is, is absolutely unconscionable. Yeah. What the white house was pushing was 1.8 trillion before negotiations broke down in October. Yeah. There was a $200 billion difference. And now here we are at half that level. Um, and Steve Mnuchin, the treasury secretary, who was the one who was negotiating the bill from what I can tell was basically saying, I'm giving you everything you want. We just need a little less than X. And she would then, she would then latch onto the little less than X so that they could get it through the Senate to say, how dare you? How dare you? You're, you're, you're nickel and diming people. Um, and it's very hard to understand this. I mean, I, I do think that she is in a district. She lives in a district and runs a district that was not particularly damaged by the virus she you know she basically is uh you know rock ribbed you know sort of san francisco wealthy people in her district and they were they weren't battening they weren't screaming at the top of their lungs that they were all going going broke um and you know that's an inter- a larger interesting question about the stratification of our society that you know 50 60 70 years ago uh, members of Congress who represented, uh, you know, members of Congress were much closer to the lives of ordinary people than they are now. A little more like uh, congressmen, uh, more like, you know, local representatives or something like that. Or they sort of really did come out of the communities that they were in. They weren't just sort of necessarily carpetbaggers or part of the kind of urban professional class, the educated class. 
um, you know, thought they would take a flyer on being a congressman or, you know, they did this or they did that. They're all professionals. They're all, but they weren't, you know, they weren't sort of like populist legislators in the real sense, like people from the working class or who had risen from the working class or risen through political organizations to positions of power. And it just doesn't feel like they had a feel for how bad things were in so many places. And particularly with small businessmen who don't have the same megaphone that a larger employer does, right? A larger employer in your district employs, you know, 500 people. Um, You're going to take his phone call immediately. A guy who has a restaurant where he employs 12 isn't going to get you on the phone, right? So you're much more, you would be much more inclined to some kind of weird business stimulus than you would be to this kind of individual small business stimulus, I think. I mean, I don't want to sort of caricature this, you know, to act like, you know, 70 years ago, Congress was just so wonderful because it was well, so but that, That's why people. her eating the expensive ice cream bar in front of her, you know, multi-thousand dollar refrigerator in, in San Francisco was something that stuck in people's minds and not just on the right. I'm not talking about just like conservative meme culture. I'm talking about like that image of her kind of you know, sort of shrugging her shoulders and enjoying her fancy ice cream symbolizes something about what I think you encapsulated very well there, John. And that's a that's it's not a contempt necessarily for the working class, but it's seeing them as an abstract entity, one of many that you balance it from your technocratic perch uh, of wealth and privilege. And I think that is something that um, they'll I hope they feel some pushback on Democrats. Well, they're they're with their more narrow majority, although judging by their rhetoric since the election, I don't see any evidence of that. Um, I think it's also it's not just that um, Nancy Pelosi and others were out of touch with the degree of um, genuine suffering going on at the uh, lower levels. She also thought she had some sort of political zinger on her hands. She thought she had a sort of uh, winning strategy to nail Republicans on this. And it was a miscalculation from the start. Um, no no one bought this. No one ever did. It, the, the effort failed on every level. Um, and this is this has proved to be one of her, 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 her worst gambits. Look, I think this is an important point to make. The key thing about the House races... House of Representative races in November, there were 27 toss-up races, and 27 of them went to the Republicans. In other words, the Cook Political Report said that 27 seats could go either way, and in a normal electoral cycle, even there was no wave here, obviously, because Biden won, 27 went to the Republicans. Now, how do you explain that? Well, we've talked about the socialism stuff. We've talked about the defund the police stuff. But the simple fact that no one, that that uh, Democrats couldn't go to the elector, electorate and say, in the last six weeks, we just, either we, meaning the people who were actually still in Congress or the ones who wanted to go into Congress, um, our party worked with Republicans to get the stimulus through. We're here to help you. We did what we had to do to help. They had no such message. They had no direct, we're the cavalry coming in on a horse to try to help you. Quite the opposite. So they had no closing message about how they had done something active because Nancy Pelosi wanted to get Donald Trump out of office and thought, as I think Abe says, that that alone was enough 
to provide the message that she wanted to provide. And this is, again, where the polling and stuff like that, Trump's complaint the polling was suppressive. This is where the polling was really da- damaging to Democrats because it did not warn them of the dangers that they were sailing into. Politico has a great um, progressives doing kind of an autopsy on their failures uh, this cycle, and most of it is very predictable. It's basically everyone else's fault. Um, But there are some more clear-eyed strategists, one of whom is uh, quoted as Robert Hockett, who was a senior advisor to Bernie Sanders' 2020 campaign, who said something that you're just going to love, John. Quote, Some of us are thinking that a left version of Frank Luntz might not be a bad idea. That There are certain words that unfortunately raise red flags for people. It's sort of a neuro-linguistic conditioning thing here where we don't have to change anything about ourselves. We just have to be much more condescending to the people to whom we're trying to appeal. Which is funny because Frank Luntz borrowed this from, I've mentioned him before, a Berkeley Berkeley guy named George Lakoff who invented the idea that the problem with liberalism and radicalism was the words, that they they needed to reframe all the words, that all the ideas people just loved, it was the words that were bad. And that was actually where this whole notion of reprogramming people using vocabulary, not, not that it isn't part of semantic infiltration and sort of what George Orwell talked about, but this was, we can use what Orwell said was so terrifying about semantic infiltration, we could use it to our advantage. So they invented it, and they should be able to, you know, make make good. But um, but I think this is politically a very interesting story. Now, let me, I, I want to talk to you guys about um, uh, a, a guest we had on the podcast like uh, 10, 12 days ago, uh, Dan Senor, uh, who has a new podcast called Post-Corona that is one of the most exciting that you will hear uh, I just recorded a pretty spirited conversation with him. If you go to Apple uh, Podcasts or iTunes or Stitcher or whatever and uh, subscribe to Post Corona, you can hear this. Um, it's really great. The theme is, uh, you know, how what happens when we emerge from this dreadful period. Our episode is about unpacking the post corona future of New York and the future, particularly of Broadway after vaccines are available. Can Broadway, which is a an industry that throws off $15 billion a year to the New York economy and employs in ans- directly in an ancillary fashion almost 100,000 people, can it survive the new ideological demands put on it from the left? Not only the coronavirus social distancing, stuff like that demands, but also the Black Lives Matter post-George Floyd demands that are being made for a kind of social leveling in creative efforts. Each episode looks at the post-corona future of a different part of our economy. On previous episodes, Dan had on a fantastic one with Moneyball's Billy Bean to discuss the future of sports. He had Adam Grant from the Wharton School to talk about the future of employment. You will learn a ton from these conversations Go to Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever your podcasts and subscribe to Post Corona with Dan Senor. Trust me, you will thank me for this. Um, so uh, let's talk a little about the incredibly depressing news that just emerged late last week that there is a new strain of the coronavirus that apparently it's not more dangerous but it is more contagious and it seems to have emerged in, in the South of England. And uh, 
And so uh, everybody's going crazy. And you have to say that, you know, with sort of good, there was bad news, right? Because the numbers right now are so depressing and sad and tragic. So many people dying every day and more cases being, and, and news of hospitals being overrun in places. But uh, the notion that there's a mutated strain that is uh, much more contagious, of course, just like gives rise to the, to pessimism and gloom and some some pretty serious hysteria like uh but it's mo- it's based on modeling the contagion claim right now is based on the modeling they're doing so just not to put a damper on the on the fear but it it's been it's been mutated put a damper on the fear okay, so the, the virus is always mutating they know this is happening it's but when people hear new strain more contagious they think oh my god it's going to wipe out all the good that the vaccine can do it's not going to do that you the vaccination will still protect you we should continue with that it it and they're not sure that the modeling is based on people's behavioral changes or the strain itself so that there's a lot of questions still to be answered i mean i think the uk did the right thing by just putting everything into lockdown again because they can't be sure and they you know there was going to be a lot of travel around the holidays but i don't think it's quite as scary as i think some of the headlines made it out to be i hope I say that with, you know, because it is based on a modeling that hasn't been, they need more data, more evidence that it in fact is more contagious than they have now. Abe, let me lay this out for you, because I think that there's a way in which this is psychologically beneficial to certain people. And by certain people, I mean Andrew Cuomo. But I mean, not just Andrew Cuomo, but the entire, the world that he represents, which is the world of people who believe in lockdowns and in using uh, centralized power to sort of control the behavior of people to help other people and all of that. And things weren't going that well for them over the last two or three weeks. Uh, Not just the obvious Thanksgiving stories about all the politicians, you know, uh, not uh, putting their money where their mouth is, but also stuff that was happening last week about how Cuomo having, having ended uh, indoor dining in New York restaurants that uh, a piece of guidance was issued by his health department saying that people who went outdoor dining to restaurants, even in the frigid cold, were not going to be allowed to go into the restaurant to go to the bathroom. And remember, these are restaurants that are, the buildings are functioning because that's where the kitchen is. That's where they're making the food. There are people going in and out, but that you were not going to be allowed. So if you went outdoor dining, you couldn't go to the bathroom. So he might as well just close down the entire restaurant industry with his, uh, you know, immense executive emergency powers. And that stuff and various other things, even in the middle of this depressing, horrible second wave, I think we're, we're beginning to have a bad PR effect. And so the emergence of the more contagious strain gave him the power to stand up yesterday and say, why aren't the airlines shutting down all air travel from the UK to the United States? Um, Cuomo throughout this has uh, loved to do two things. One of which is um, to pick up on any new um, scary or depressing wrinkle in the general pandemic story and um, seize on that as um, a justification for his vigilance. So, um, he was uh, very vocal. This is, I, don't know, I forget how many months back, when people started talking about how in children, perhaps there's some sort of different um, uh, COVID effect where, whereby they, they get this um, sort of syndrome with a different cluster of symptoms. And um, Cuomo went on and on and on about that. I, I don't think actually much uh, ultimately came of that. We don't, we, that, 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 but that was something that was very big for him in his um, sort of uh, shutdown uh, justifications. Uh, the other is 
he loves to be able to point the finger at other officials um, outside New York who um, don't have his uh, apparent foresight and sense of vigilance. Um, whenever whenever there's a, a story about a rise in numbers anywhere else, it's because they did it wrong. They didn't. They didn't. They 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 um, they they opened up too soon. Unlike New York, where we don't do that. Um, the the airlines are are should be shut down. Everyone should be everyone should be doing exactly what um, he should be doing. He loves to deflect. Um, uh, he never ever looks at this as um, a, a, a matter of um, where his policies have failed. It's only what others should be doing um, more. And there he gets plenty of support for that sort of thing from you know people who are, I guess, sainted in the COVID era, like Anthony Fauci, who continues to maintain to this day that New York is the model to follow. New York did everything right, um, which defies explanation unless there's some sort of other motive there, quite frankly, a professional motive. Yeah. And it, you know, that's the sort of thing you're not allowed to say because the guy's infallible. Yeah. And, and, you know, and the fact that, that New York's numbers are rising again and have been consistently rising again also, you know, gives the lie to this uh, to this accusation that Cuomo um, and others, but most most obviously Cuomo um, accused uh, other, you know, re- Republican led states of of opening up too soon and getting it all wrong and, and, and being unlike New York. It doesn't, it, the, the virus doesn't apparently work that way. Numbers will rise and the virus will do what it's going to do. Um, uh, regardless of the, the, the part party in, in place. In, in any I state. mean, I, I think, I think sent, we have two competing philosophies. One of which is somehow you have to understand that people have to live their lives and they have to take account of the virus and they have to do things to mitigate the virus and they have, but, but um, interrupting the simple running good working order of daily life is something that is to be avoided. You are not supposed to end schooling for children. You are not supposed to make it impossible for small businesses to stay open because you're talking about ruining tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives. That's one attitude. And the other attitude is this must be stopped. And anybody who says otherwise is callous, indifferent, and, you know, heartless, and somehow some kind of a monster, and how dare you, and all of that. And the, and and so in an odd way, everybody seizes each side, I don't want to do, you know, both sidesism, but each side seizes on any little individual story that might strengthen their position. So, but there is a world of people who, uh, are worried that our vigilance is slowing down because we have COVID exhaustion and everyone's going to travel at Christmas time and that we're going to have a spike and no one's going to mask and all this and all that. And so they want the news. They want to spread stories in the news that will scare the crap out of people. That is what they want because they think that is good and they're, they're, the scrap, crap is scared out of them or they think that's what's important. Um, and then you have people who want stories that say what you're doing is ruining people's lives worse than than the virus could, and uh, or and and that's where in each of these circumstances you have people say we can never get out of this, or COVID is a is a scam and it's not real and it's not really happening and and you know let, let's face it, it's a fake virus and stuff like that. People at that Jericho march 
last weekend um, uh, who were saying like, you know, the supposed virus or the so-called virus or something like that. So uh, that's where we are. So the, the strain is very depressing and the use of it is very depressing. And it's too bad that we have to go into the Christmas season or Christmas week uh, with this kind of depressing uh, thing oh, hang over our heads, but uh, there we are. And well, because I just, if, can, I, if, I just right, can I just say one thing to that point, which is a shout out to any UK listeners we have. They that entire nation has had to turn on a dime and go into lockdown days before Christmas. It after being told by their prime minister that oh lockdown we won't need to do that again it's fine and they you know what unlike a lot of Americans they just talk about a stoical people they just kind of they're doing it I mean I'm sure a lot of them don't like it and there are definitely some people complaining about it but there's something to be said for the sort of national cohesion that you can see going on uh, over there that maybe we could learn a little something from that's true and if you can't get that what you need to do is find some peace inside your own soul and that's why I'm here to talk to you about headspace your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations and an easy-to-use app, one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the situation, Headspace really can help you feel better. Overwhelmed? Headspace has a three-minute SOS meditation for you. Need some help falling asleep? Headspace has wind-down sessions their members swear by, and for parents, Headspace even has morning meditations you can do with your kids. Headspace is Approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. Backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads, Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule anytime, anywhere. So you deserve to feel happier. Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash commentary. That's headspace.com slash commentary for a one me one free one month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash commentary today. Um so uh we have a new explosion of outrage at Donald Trump and actual serious suggestions that he should be impeached 30 days or 31 days before Biden is sworn into office because of reports coming out of not just his conduct since the election and and all of that, but reports coming out in the last few days that he was having late night meetings suggesting maybe that the voting machines should be uh, commandeered by Homeland Security to check their tallies and... Uh, uh, that uh, Sidney Powell, the uh, lawyer who was going to release the Kraken that was going to destroy the electoral hopes of Joe Biden, should be appointed to some special commission or to a, as a special counsel or something like that, screaming fights inside the White House where apparently even Trumpy guys like Mark Meadows and, and Ken Cuccinelli were saying, what are you, crazy? This is insane. We can't do this. And then uh, people are friends of ours who are in the sort of the, the the never Trump crowd are literally calling for impeachment and removal from office thirty days before. Um, now I'm not saying that you know I'm a big believer in this notion that Trump needs to work through his emotions upon losing, and you know we should all be very very patient with him and all this. I think this is all preposterous and ridiculous, but I, I do think that him calling up somebody to say, "Can we uh, seize?" Voting machines is not an impeachable or removable offense that he asks the question, you know, if he actually ordered ordered it, 
then maybe that would be impeachable or removable. But I do think that, like, can we get away from this already? Like, it's not just he's doing this, and it's that this inexhaustible supply of, can you believe what Trump... I, I, I compared this a couple of months ago to friends of mine who are, you know, in the midst of divorces who call you five times a day to say, can you believe I got an email? And do you believe what, what they did, what she's saying? It's just, it's crazy. And someone needs to do something, you know, like that. And they can't get out of it. And it's like, it's just a month. It's a month. Like go, go stop posting on this. Get off Twitter. Like you're driving yourself and me and everybody else insane. And it's also like, yeah, we, we we believe it. We can believe. We, 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 yes, I have no problem believing. I've seen four years of of, of evidence to, to convince me. Yes, there's. No, I have no problem believing it. I mean, and also, you know, the, the truth is that despite this, um, transition teams are working together. That's happening with Trump's consent. You know, so it's it's not as if um, things aren't moving. However, um, you know. Um, haphazardly and um, uh, alarmingly, but they, they are moving toward their their natural conclusion of, of uh, the transition of power. I saw a k- kind of interesting tweet along these lines. Um, a guy named Patrick Bryn, who are Byrne, B-Y-R-N, Byrne, yeah, um, who worked in the administration, saying Donald Trump is being terribly served by his advisors. They are giving him there. He's surrounded by people who are mendacious mediocrities who are lying to him and are giving him a lot of bad advice. And one of the people who remarked on this was Brad Parscale, who was Donald Trump's campaign manager for quite some time before he was ejected and, you know, left in ignominy and had some mental issues. He remarked on this tweet and said, D level. I've been saying this for years. He's one of the D level guys. He's, he's D he's the D team. And these people now are just letting us know that the president was surrounded by all these people who are inadequate and can't, you know, not not up to the charge that was before them, as though it was hard to notice. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's pretty self evident now that all the people who are like, "Oh, this is terrible," he's going to be this, you know, assault on the foundations of the republic. The people who are the executors of this plot could not be more incompetent. I mean, it's not even a plot. Is the point? It's like it's like uh, it's like they're he's talking to his friends about the high level mystery conspiracy political potboiler novel that he wants to write. You know, I mean, it, it's got that quality. It's like what is? It's not to say that it, he's I, the Dominion machine. You know, Sidney Powell has this idea: we could seize the Dominion machines. Can we do that? It's like no. Okay, you know. <laughs> so he then tweets and says, "This is all fake news." But you know, he asked. Of course. Now I don't want to say that re- this is not sordid conduct. That this is not condemnable conduct. It is. And if you want to, you know, rend garments over it and be really outraged about it, you're not unjustified in that reaction. And if that makes you feel better, go for it. But I don't know what it serves to make me miserable. Why do you need me to be miserable with you? You can be miserable all by yourself. No, but the people who want to hear it, they can't get enough of it. They can't get enough of their Trump porn. I mean, I don't know. It's like, uh, it's like, uh, I don't know. Isn't there some like category of the, where, you know, it's like people like to get beaten by dominatrixes. I mean, it's like they can't get enough of 
the I hate Trump so much. I you tell me I it's been three hours since I was reminded why I hate Trump so much and why he's a unique threat to the republic, and I was about to forget. So remind me again. But they don't want to police Trump, like, get him removed from office in a month as though Congress is even capable of that kind they of lacking. But I don't think they do. I think they want you to sign on. I think they want you to either be on the record one way or the other in this proposition to demonstrate your either uh, zeal for the cause or lack thereof. It's too late, Noah. You've already, you're already oh. you're you're already totally compromised. I know Steve Schmidt said you're like you're let like this test uh, failed. <laughs> yeah, you're like the you're like the Weimar liberals who, who let all this happen. So you know you you could sign on now. Say we all signed on now and said yes, he must be impeached now. It would be like where were you? Where then? were you? Where were you then? Really? Oh, now now it's fine. Now you can say it. That's the reveal, right? That's the rub. Is it not? It's not really about Trump. It's about them. Well, everything's about every everything's about you. I mean, you know, every every we, everything we do is some version of you know some solipsistic thing. I'm just saying, like, it's enough. Like, really, this is how you want to you want want this to end. I mean, it's not that I don't think that the reporting on the stories is fine. I mean, even if you went to social media and said, "Thank God he's out. He's out in a month. Look at him. Look, 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 look at how he's look at how he's going out of office." Um, or whatever. You have Rich Lowry and Ramesh Panura, who have a very compelling, uh, full-throated piece attacking Donald Trump's behavior and comportment, and noting that it is not without consequence. There is nothing to disagree with there, but. By virtue of its provenance, the argument has been attacked as being somehow disingenuous. And it's just a real, there's a desire on the part of the critics of people who were um, Trump friendlier than any of us were, certainly, who are issuing these condemnations and saying, you know, because because these arguments come from you, they are invalid. But the arguments themselves yeah. are uh, pretty meritorious and, and hard to, to yeah, I mean, can I, you, you would yeah. thank that you would thank this, them from coming from these particular sources under different contexts because they could reach people that you, the Never Trump crew or the, the hardcore progressives who've always opposed Trump certainly cannot. Let me just say one thing, which is Never Trump crew is what, you know, like the one, the people I know are their view. I'm not talking about the Lincoln project. I'm, you know, people at the bulwark and build and, you know, this is an honestly, this is a, a view that they have been holding since 2016. They have not veered from it. Uh, there, there have been consequences to them and positive elements of it. Um, the people that I find I want to just throw through a plate glass window are, you know, Scaramucci and Michael Cohen. Like if Scaramucci hadn't been fired in 11 days, he would still be, he would still be slop, slobbering all over Trump every way that he could. And if Michael Cohen had gotten his pardon, he would be dancing a jig and at that same rally saying that Trump should call in the, you know, should declare martial law. This is all those people who had already sold their souls to him and then don't get what they want and then somehow are cleansed by their never Trump behavior in the aftermath of it. Like screw them. That's what I say. No one's, they're not giving me a moral lecture. But, but you know, there is something about the, the, the never Trump movement. And by the way, they have this in common with the pro Trumpers, um, whereby, they don't. They reject 
converts, right? As we were just saying, like, you know, if you come to this late, um, that is, that is, that is your problem. Where were you beforehand? And the, the, the pro Trumpers have this too, right? You're not allowed to get on. You weren't allowed to get on board with Trump support after already having said you, you, you doubted his, um, abilities. Um, you couldn't come around to the pro Trump side either and be welcomed. Which is the fact that this exists on both sides is a very strange thing because normally in a political movement, you want to gain numbers. You want to gain force, right? So this isn't about um, growing a movement. This is very much about what Noah says. This is about them. This was, and this is on both sides. It is overwhelmingly about, see, I was right. You were wrong. I'm not going to let you forget it. I'm right. You're wrong. Right. Um, so let me talk to you about our next sponsor, the Jordan Harbinger Show, okay? It's a different kind of sponsor. This is a podcast you really should be listening to. And I know that every day somebody tells you you just have to listen to some podcast. I did it earlier, right? I did it with Dan Senor's podcast. But you nod, you just say sure, and then you, and you don't listen to it. But don't let that happen here. Jordan Harbinger's show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening. Each episode is a conversation with a different fascinating guest. And when I say there's something for everyone here, I mean that. In one episode, Jordan talks to a hostage negotiator from the FBI who offers techniques on how to get people to like and trust you, which sounds useful, and a little disturbing at the same time. Another episode tells the story of a cinematographer who discovered a lost city in the jungle and made one of the most important archaeological finds of this century. Jordan's always focused on pulling useful, practical insights out of his brilliant guests, and we're not talking about pop psychology or wishy-washy self-help stuff here. The episodes are loaded with bits of wisdom that you can use to legitimately change your mind and improve your life right Away, if that's not worth checking out, I'm not sure what is. We really enjoy this show, and we think you will as well. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, so as we rage and yell and yammer about Trump, um, I, I, I am just struck, struck, struck by the fact that we're going to have a new president in 31 days and uh he and he's somebody who was vice president he's been in politics for for 50 years and all this and it's not that he's invisible because he was on Stephen Colbert and he does this and he says that and he's going to get uh, vaccinated today and all of that just doesn't He's not like the central figure on the planet Earth, which is what he kind of ought to be. You know, it's like we spent more time talking about Jill Biden's stupid Ed D degree last week than we did talking about Joe Biden and his cabinet and who he's picking and all of that. Help. Christina, there are help. like there are a couple of <clears throat> literally a handful of dogged pro Biden partisans who are confused. They seem genuinely confused by the notion that the incoming president of the United States has to worry about his ideological flanks. He's the president. He occupies the, you know, the, the, the bully pulpit. He's, you know, the most all consuming personality in the country. Why does he have to worry about these upstarts who are nipping at his heels? And I, I, I think the answer to that is that he doesn't seem to have much of a, of a vision that contrasts with theirs strongly enough to arrest their ascent. 
to the uh, to the ideological prominence to lead the Democratic Party's ideological um, you know renovation. And I think Christine wants to talk about this. I mean, one of the latest innovations in this particular tribe is uh, has to do basically is is essentially more anti racism stuff. And the anti-racism stuff now compels you to um, get the COVID vaccine to more particularly needy and deserving populations who would otherwise not be needing and deserving okay, in any again, other in context. So they want to talk about something that isn't Joe Biden. That's not Joe Biden. That's something else. He is not. He is not the center of our national conversation. His incoming administration is very far from the center of our national conversation. Now, maybe you could say that's what we paid for, or that's what the country paid for because it wanted an anti-Trump or something. But there is something weird. It is not normal. It is not. It is beyond normal. Christine, well, I think it's kind of nice. There's also something slightly worrisome about it. I mean, we we have talked a little bit about this with regard to foreign policy and particularly Middle East policy going forward. Even if people just wanted the non-Trump, they don't want to go back to the Obama era either. The times have changed. The world has changed. So this idea that you're just going to get a caretaker isn't enough, right? You actually need someone who's got some, as, as Noah said, at least some vision for what we should be doing going forward. He's been, he, he's been pretty absent. I think though we should also look to the media for this because I think they're still trying to wrap their heads around how they're going to cover this administration. You see, you know, some partisan shifting moving around in media. The, the new Washington bureau chief of Politico is a, is a pretty partisan uh, former MSNBC person. So that'll probably be some really interesting and soft peddling coverage of, of Biden for the next few years. But I think part of it's that they don't know how to cover him. I mean, they were creating stories out of every time, you know, Donald Trump or Donald Trump Jr. sneezed, you know, they didn't need anything from Trump. He just had to exist. Someone who lacks that kind of crazy charisma, they have to create stories and they don't really have anything to say beyond, I mean, the, the Colbert performance was was bizarre and also kind of I don't know. It just made me really dislike Stephen Colbert now. Um, it was so sycophantic. And I guess that's what we're in for. But this is an administration that's going to face some serious challenges in the next few years. And you would think somebody would ask him at least one tough question that would generate a new story. Haven't heard one. I mean, people have asked him about Hunter and he and he gets him. angry, right? Exactly. I mean, so, yeah. but, but I mean, even there, like, forget Hunter. Not that, not that I think Hunter is not a story. I mean... He's going to be president in 30 days. We're having a big ideological shift. Granted, we don't know how, how the Senate's going to be constituted because we're waiting until January uh, 5th or 6th to know what happens in the Georgia runoffs. But, I mean, yeah, we know he's appointing this one, he's appointing that one, he's appointing the other one. I have never, this is a kind of affectlessness for, you know, somebody who got 81 million votes that is, uh, you know, it's just something new. I don't even know what to but, make of it. So this is where I think Noah's right. The void is already starting to be filled. And it's being filled by people, activists who are basically seizing the the lack of any kind of directive from the new incoming administration to start just doing crazy stuff. So here right. in DC. I wanna okay, I want to yeah. talk about that. I want to yeah. but let me let me just let me just do our final ad read uh for better help. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. 
There is a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to charge counselor, change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read their testimonials that are posted daily at betterhelp.com slash reviews. Visit betterhelp.com slash commentary. That's better H-E-L-P. And join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Special offer for commentary podcast listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash commentary. Okay, Christine, go go to please. The crazy. Well, well I've I've been uh, absolutely spamming our our group text feed with crazy stories I've been finding over the weekend. Apologies, but one of the things that has been driving me nuts because we were talking about this last week about who gets the COVID vaccine, how are they gonna, how are we gonna decide, you know, this ethical uh, these ethical challenges once we do what once we vaccinate the people who no one would disagree needs it, like, you know, frontline medical workers, et cetera, et cetera. So here in D.C. Uh, comes news that our, our mayor, who I just want to throw out there, has not managed to get kids back into classrooms for a, almost a year now, is going to include uh, uh, prison inmates among the people who are in the very next, after the medical workers are the next round to get uh, vaccinated. These are like, in, like along with police officers and, and uh, school teachers and nursing home uh, healthcare workers, convicted felons, rapists, murderers, drug dealers. These people all deserve vaccination ahead of law-abiding citizens. Now, I know there's a whole debate. There's actually an ongoing debate about this. Massachusetts is another place that's considering this. Ayanna Presley went on TV this weekend and, and endorsed this idea. But here in D.C., it's been advocated by a prison abolition activist. The people who are pushing this are the most extreme anti-prison, anti-police folks you can imagine, and our local elected officials are listening to them. That strikes me as something that is going to have repercussions down the line for not just trust in our elected officials, but regular law-abiding citizens who've been locked up in their houses for months and months, whose kids can't go to school. Why we'll look at that and say, why are prisoners getting vaccinated before I, you know, before other people are, including at-risk people? So I just throw that out there as one of the examples of what Noah was suggesting is happening. This is one of the things that <clears throat> is why social media is so toxic uh, if for your you know under- understanding of the American political social compact is that you're not really allowed to say things like, yeah, people aren't going to appreciate it when this rationed vaccine now that everybody needs in order to re-engage in social and economic and political life is now being distributed to people who violated criminal statutes on the state, municipal and federal level. Um, that's the sort of thing that could foment a backlash. You can't say that in progressive-dominated political Twitter, for example, because the universe will come down around your head, even though it's intuitive. Same thing happened with Dreamers. Um, you know, the notion here that you know there was some back in 2018 when we were, there was a shutdown, government shutdown, literally over uh, with the status of a very sympathetic group of illegal immigrants. And, you know, I was talking with MSNBC people at the time about like, you know, why are even Democratic politicians so reluctant to sign on to this thing? It's such a no brainer, right? And when the answer is that you're giving citizenship to illegal immigrants, that's it, that's it. And that's really hard, easy to get your head around unless you rationalize yourself into a much more complex understanding of how American politics functions. 
I mean, also the interesting thing about this one, though, is that, you know, um, I think even unlike defund the police, um, uh, uh, the the sort of um, generally generally uh, liberal um, uh, uh, public, I'm not talking about party people or elected officials who sort of um, were happy enough to echo the defund the police uh, message are themselves. We're talking about now the people who are the um, the most sort of afraid of the pandemic here. And I don't think they're going to be um, very comfortable echoing the, uh, yes, we'll go after the prisoners. But they are because they call them some of our nation's most vulnerable citizens. I'm like, I'm sorry, you're talking about vaccinating the rapists. I'm not on board with that. And, And the idea that like, if they're talking from a public health perspective, saying, you know, because they're all packed into these smaller facilities and they can't socially distance, this is why they're not making a public health argument. They're making a social justice argument. And they're saying, because these people violated the social compact, often costing other innocent people their lives, they are still allowed to get bumped up to the front of the line because they're vulnerable now that they're in prison. It does not make sense unless you have this social justice blinder. Unless box. unless you believe that the social compact is itself invalid. Right. In right. which case you believe in decarceration and the abolition of prisons, which most of these people do. We are going to take this up at greater length tomorrow where we are going to focus on the interesting shift that is going on and the expansion of this message and what it means politically, because there's a lot more going on in the realm of decarceration, talk about prisoners, talk about our responsibilities to them and all of that, uh, that may have wide lasting political consequences, particularly for a Democratic Party that is um, that has not taken the measure of the damage that it may be doing to itself in the way that it talks about some of these issues. So that's something we're going to get to tomorrow. And uh, until then, (laughs) for Abe, Christina, Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.